Well, good morning, Three Lakes. Good morning. Good morning? Oh, I need it better than that. Good morning. Hey, there we go. If you are in the back, we invite you to come into the sanctuary. We're going to start worship here in a minute. If you're cold, it's because we didn't have heat this morning. So we're trying to uh, warm up up here a little bit. We've had the fireplaces going this morning. We've had all kinds of little snafus. So we've just bear with us this morning, I guess. Um, We'll invite you to stand and we'll start some worship this morning. We'll warm up a little bit that way.
gather with you this morning as we, we worship our God, who, as we just saying, does great things. If you are newer visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you are here with us. If you are new or visiting, there's anything you want to communicate with the church, there's a, a Connect card on the seat in front of you. You can use that to fill out, let us know about yourself, and communicate anything you need to communicate with the church office. Those can be placed in the box that's on the back wall on your way out this morning. I thought that where you can place tithes and offerings this morning. A couple things for you to be aware of. First, um, coming up this Thursday, we'll have our Women's Common Ground event over women in the church. That'll be this Thursday at 6.30 here at the church. We invite you to be a part of that. Second thing to be aware of is that this morning we will... Uh, take communion together at the end of our service. So a couple of things to be aware of in light of that. One is that on communion Sundays, we take a an additional special offering, a benevolence offering. That's the special offering to meet the needs of people in our, our community primarily I and mean, in our church. And so there will be someone standing at the door on your way out holding a plate. That's where benevolence offering can go, regular tithes and offering can go in those boxes on the back wall. The second thing to be aware of is that on Communion Sundays, for starting last month and now going forward for a little bit, we our, our cross-training time will be a time of focused prayer that Bill Miller will be leading. And so instead of meeting in here, this room for that, they're going to meet over in the youth wing, and they'll kind of make it a little more intimate that way. And so you can join that part of that focused prayer time over in um, the youth wing over there. We'll have our parenting class over in the library as well. Um, there'll be children's Sunday school downstairs. So, again, we are glad you're here. We're glad to have this time to worship with you together this morning. As we continue in worship, let's prepare our hearts with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you that we can worship you as a God who does indeed do great things, who is mighty and worthy of our praise. Think that you are a God who is infinitely wise, who knows better than we do what is right and good and just and how to carry out your good purposes. We thank you for your infinite wisdom even in the midst of hard things, that you are bringing about your good purposes. So we, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. We pray that you will give us the faith to trust your goodness, even in the midst of hard and challenging times. Father, as we, we worship you this morning, as we hear your word this morning, would you focus our minds what our mouths sing out of an overflow of our heart, and what we desire deeply to know you better and to be more like Jesus and to bring you honor and glory and praise. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, we're going to invite you to stand in worship again. We're going to start out with the doxology. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes, like yesterday, I was in, I don't know, just kind of a, just feeling about things and feeling bad for myself a little bit and what a beautiful song to sing to kind of break you out of that praise God from whom all blessings flow 
all of the blessings that we have come from God. Praise Him, all creatures here below. So as we sing these songs, these words, just reflect on that. Let's open up and praise God this morning.
indeed great and mighty and worthy of our praise and our worship. We thank you for your greatness and your love for us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good. Jen mentioned at the beginning, we know it's a little chilly in here this morning. We're sorry about that. But you should know that it's right now like nine degrees warmer than when I showed up this morning. And if you're thankful for that, it's nine degrees warmer. You can make sure to thank Dave Kirby. I think he's down there in the nursery this morning. But he showed up bright and early to fix something. He explained what he did. I understand it, understood like zero percent of it. But he did something to make the boiler start working again. So you can thank him for that and for coming out earlier to make it bearable in here. I think we probably all at, at various times over the last few years felt the effects of like, the labor shortage in one way or another. According to most recent numbers I can find, right, there's currently 11 million open jobs in the United States and there's only 6 million unemployed workers. Right? There's more open jobs than there are workers. And one of the places that felt that shortage the most is the fast food industry. There's lots of shortages in that industry. In order to combat this, many fast food companies have, have gone to somewhat extreme measures to try to recruit people to come and work for them. And one of those measures is they've started to offer employees to be paid the day after they work, instead of every two weeks. Right? So it's pretty common to see signs that look something like this. Right? Start today, get paid tomorrow. And these kinds of measures are having some success. Right? And the reason I think they're successful is that a recent study found that 72% of workers wish they had access to their paycheck before payday. Right? There's something in us that wants to receive whatever we feel like we've earned as soon as we've earned it. Right? We don't want to wait for us to receive what we feel like we deserve. Right? We want instant gratification, instant reward. But in God's economy, like, things don't always work that way. In fact, they, they rarely work that way. Right? Often throughout the Bible, righteous people suffer and wicked people prosper. And it can leave us confused. But the Bible promises us over and over and over again that while it may not always happen on the timeline that we want, God's justice will eventually prevail. It may not always be as quick as we like, but God's justice always prevails. Just not always on our timeline. We see that very clearly in, in the book of 1 Kings in chapter 21. There's a pastor named R.G. Lee. He had, a, he had a famous sermon on this passage. He became so well known for the sermon that he got asked to preach it over and over and over again to the point that like, he preached his sermon on 1 Kings 21 more than 1,200 times in his life. Like, like, I can't imagine preaching the same sermon 1,200 times. Like, I can't imagine preaching 1,200 times, period. Like, never mind the same sermon. Like, but anyway, the title he gave to his sermon on this passage, on 1 Kings 21, was Payday Someday. And it's a fitting title because it, in this passage we see that people get what they deserve. Just not always in the timing we would 
hope or expect. To lay the, lay the groundwork for this passage, there are, there are five people who matter in today's passage. The first there is a guy named Naboth. He's a faithful man. He's a, he's a model of righteousness. And he just so happens to own property very close to the royal palace. So in last week's sermon, we saw that when like, Elijah felt like he was the only righteous one left. But God promised Elijah there were 7,000 left in Israel who had not bent the knee to Baal. 7,000 righteous people left in Israel, and Naboth is one of those 7,000. He's a righteous man. Then there's, there's Ahab. Ahab, the king of Israel. And in his Payday Sunday sermon, like, here's how R.G. Lee described Ahab. He called him the vile toad who squatted upon the throne of his nation. Which is, I think, is a good picture of Ahab. He's a, a terrible man. He's a wicked man. He's a terrible king. Like, the book of Kings tells us he was more wicked than any who came before him. He's a bad king. The third person who matters, then it's Jezebel, who is Ahab's wife. And she's responsible for introducing Baal worship into Israel. And in many ways, she's the real power behind the throne. Right? She manipulates and controls Ahab to her own ends. The fourth person who mattered is Elijah. He's the prophet. Right? And last we saw Elijah, last week's sermon, he was fleeing He was despairing of his life. He was being disobedient to God after Jezebel had threatened him. He just ran away in fear. And fifth, and of course, finally, there's God. The fifth character that matters in this passage. And just as in the rest of the Bible, God is working in this passage through these people and these events to bring about his good purposes. So as as we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to look at each of those five people in turn and, and see what we can learn from each of them. With that in mind, let's jump in to our passage this morning in 1 Kings chapter 21. Starting in verse 1, we read this. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the pal- palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use it for a vegetable garden and that is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard. Or, if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. And so the first thing we see in this passage then is it's Naboth's faithfulness. Like, Naboth here is presented with what seems like a golden opportunity. He just so happens to own a plot of land that the richest man in the country wants. And that rich man is willing to pay him whatever he wants to acquire this plot of land. This seems like an absolute jackpot. I mean, like, like, I like our house, but if someone showed up tomorrow and wanted to give me a nicer house, wanted to pay me way above market value for it, like, sure, we'll do that. I'd do that deal in a heartbeat. Which makes it kind of complexing then when Naboth says, nah. Like, what are you doing, Naboth? Like, do you not understand leverage? Like, like you could use this to make yourself wealthier, to gain power in the kingdom. Like, you, could, you, could, you have 
Ahab wrapped around your finger. Why won't you sell this vineyard? But to understand Naboth's response, we need to notice a few things in this passage that we may have missed in the first reading. So first, notice what Ahab wants to do with the land. In verse 2 we read this. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. Ahab wants to turn Naboth's vineyard into a vegetable garden. Which may not seem like a big deal. Like, yeah, vegetables are kind of gross. But, so it may seem odd, right, that Ahab wants to, to turn a vineyard into a vegetable garden. But, just because it's odd, it doesn't seem like a good reason to not sell. But then, like, compare this with the only other place, the only other place in the entire Old Testament where this, this word for vegetable garden appears. Right? It's in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Right? That the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land after leaving Egypt. God says this to them. The land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. But the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. The vegetable gardens, right? they were something of a necessary evil in Egypt, right, the people who needed to plant those just to be able to feed themselves. But in Israel, if they're going to enter the promised land where the, the land is abundant, the land is plentiful, like God cared for the land himself, so you are free to plant more extravagant things like vineyards. You don't need to plant vegetable gardens. God will take care of that. You can plant extravagantly vineyards. Vineyards are a picture of God's care for his people. That's why Israel itself, the nation, the people are called God's vineyard in the Old Testament. And now Ahab wants to take a vineyard and turn it into a vegetable garden. The idea being conveyed is that Ahab wants to to lead Israel back to Egypt. Wants to take them out of God's promised protection and into slavery in Egypt once again. And Naboth wants no part of that. The second reason Naboth refuses to sell the vineyard is because he knows that it's not actually his to sell. In Leviticus 25, God tells his people, as he's about to divvy up the land of Israel, he tells the people this, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. God brought Israel into, God brought the people into Israel in the in fulfillment of the promises he made to Abraham. And he allocated that land to tribes as an inheritance. But ultimately it was still God's land, and it was not for them to sell. They were allowed to lease the land for a period of time, but never sell it outright. But that's what Ahab is proposing here. Like, sell me the land. Like, give it to me forever. And Naboth knows he can't do that. It's not right, right? When Naboth says in verse 3, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors, like, he really means it. Right? The Lord forbids it. And Naboth is choosing faithfulness to God over the chance to personally enrich himself. 
Nebathir reminds me a little bit of a, a woman named Edith Macefield. Now, she lived in, in the Ballard neighborhood of Seattle. As it transitioned from this kind of blue-collar, rugged neighborhood into a more upscale neighborhood filled with condos and trendy restaurants. So as that's transitioning, she watched it over and over and over again. Her neighbors sold their houses to developers. And eventually her little two-bedroom house built in 1900 was the only house remaining. And developers wanting her house offered her a million dollars for her little, tiny, two-bedroom, 1900 house. But she refused, saying, I don't want to move. I don't need the money. Money doesn't mean anything. So having been denied, developers built their development around her house. It looks like this. You can see the development all around, and there's her little house just in the midst of all of it. And that's, that's Naboth here, right? No amount of money was going to convince him to sell his land and violate the command of God. And Ahab doesn't take it well. Look at verse 4. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So he lay on his bed, sulking, and refused to eat. This is the king of Israel, right? And he's acting like a, like a sulky teenager who doesn't get his way. Like, like Mom won't let me go to the party with my friends. I'm going to go to my room and I'm not coming out for supper. Right? Like, that's Ahab. Like, like, my kids handle being told no better than this. Right? And they're all eight or younger. Like, he's acting like a child. Yet Ahab has more money, more possessions, more land than he could possibly ever need. Yet he lets Naboth's refusal drive him into a funk. It doesn't make sense rationally. But that's how greed works. This is a picture of, of Ahab's greediness. Right? Greed drives us, no matter how much we have, to always want more and more and more. And no matter what you get that you think will satisfy you, there's always something else after that, and something else after that, and after that, after, after that. Like, greed is never satisfied. And Ahab, as king, is, is not used to being told no. So when it happens here, he, he doesn't know how to react. He, all he knows how to do is to, to sit in his room and sulk. But his wife, Jezebel, doesn't like seeing Ahab this way. No one likes living with a whiny teenager. So that's what she's dealing with here. And so his, she just has to take matters into her own hand. She decides she can fix things for Ahab. So continuing in verse 5, we read this. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is that how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. 
but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he was, has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and the nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that, Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell to you. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. And so Ahab, he was a terrible king. He was, he was greedy and he was selfish and he led the people away from God. But we see here that his wife Jezebel was arguably even worse. And she was truly wicked. The fact that she could scheme to have an innocent man killed in cold blood. It's a picture of Jezebel's wickedness. Unlike Ahab, who only sulked when he didn't get what he wanted, Jezebel had no qualms about doing whatever was needed, no matter how wicked, to get what she and Ahab want. Like, Naboth won't sell his land? Like, no problem. Just have people drum up false charges of blasphemy and kill him off. That's, that's sheer wickedness. And at this point in the story, right, you might be inclined to wonder, like, where is God? Does he not see this righteous man, Naboth? Naboth who, who selflessly sacrificed the chant at abundant wealth in order to honor God. Does God not see Naboth being falsely accused and killed? Does he not see all the wicked things that Jezebel is doing and getting away with? Why doesn't he act? If he is a a God of justice, why won't he exercise his justice? Of course, the answer to that is, yes, that God does see what is happening. And he will act. He will exercise his justice. But it's not always in the timeline we would expect. And we'll see that in the next part of our story. But before we get to the next part of the story, like one thing we should take from, from this portion of the story. That's this. Faithfulness to God is not a guarantee that we won't suffer. In fact, like it may be our, our very faithfulness to God that causes us to suffer. Like, Naboth draws the auger of the royal family precisely because he refused to break God's law and sell the land that God had given to his family. And what was his reward? He was executed under false pretenses. That's what Naboth got for his righteousness. He was faithful to God and he suffered greatly for it. Faithfulness to God is not guaranteed that we will not suffer. There is no promise that we will be rewarded for faithful living in this life. 
Payday is coming. We will get what we deserve, but it is someday. It is not necessarily today. It is not necessarily in this life. And the flip side of that, then, is just because you sin and seem to not have any consequences for your sin does not mean that God doesn't care about your sin or that you've gotten away with it somehow. Like at this point in the story, it looks like Ahab and Jezebel have gotten exactly what they wanted through murder. And it looks like they've gotten away with it. But God was watching. He has seen what had gone on. He has a plan to deal with it. And that plan starts to unfold in verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, This is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, This is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. And to feel the full weight of God telling Elijah to do this, we need to remember where Elijah was spiritually and emotionally when we saw him last. The last week in our sermon, we looked at how Jezebel threatened to kill Elijah, and in response, Elijah departed, fled for his life, despaired for his life, and he ran away in fear. He stopped trusting God. He, he disobeyed God. But then we saw how in the midst of all of that, God was still gracious and merciful to Elijah. God, God provided for Elijah's physical needs. He, he patiently implored Elijah to trust him. God stuck with Elijah in the midst of Elijah's failures. And now we see how Elijah responds to God's grace. Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, Elijah answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebet, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah. Because you have aroused my anger and caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and birds will feed on those who die in the country. So Elijah here, he's responding to the grace that God showed him with renewed boldness. After running away as far as he could out of fear, now Elijah obeys God's call and he goes and he confronts Ahab and Jezebel for their sin. And Elijah here is a model for us of how we have to respond to God's grace when we fail. God's graciousness towards us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our failure, cannot and should not be an excuse to go on sinning. Instead, we ought to respond to God's grace towards us the way Elijah did, right? By, by recommitting ourselves to do the hard things that God has called us to do. 
In Romans 6, Paul has just finished explaining how grace is great and it triumphs over sin. And then he asked the question, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And then he answers his own question by saying, By no means. God's grace is not, a per, is not permission to go on sinning. Instead, God's grace, properly understood, should, should move us to greater obedience. That's what it did for Elijah here. God's grace turned Elijah from a scared, despairing, fleeing prophet to a prophet who boldly goes and he confronts Ahab. He condemns Ahab and Jezebel to death, to Ahab's face. We hear Elijah's words, and at least I think, like, yes, like finally Ahab and Jezebel are going to get what is coming to them. Which makes the next couple verses truly startling. In verse 27 we read, When Ahab heard these words, though that is Elijah's words of judgment, he, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and he fasted and he lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. I don't know about you, but I can read that and get angry. Like, who cared if Ahab humbled himself? Like, surely it's too late for that. Like, he, he killed Naboth. Like, he's a terrible king. Like, who cares that he's humbling himself now, God? But here we see an example, again, of, of God's delayed justice. God does not overlook sin. God does not forget his justice. But he will, at times, delay his justice for his good purposes. But God's justice still prevails. In the next chapter of 1 Kings 22, Ahab goes to battle against Aram and is, is starting, and starting in verse 34, we read this. In the midst of the battle, but someone drew his bow at random, and you can put big air quotes around at random, and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried him there. They washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria where the prostitutes bathed and the dogs licked up his blood as the word of the Lord had declared. So, so Ahab dies there. And then in Second Kings chapter 1, we read about the end of Ahab's dynasty. God had promised that Ahab's dynasty would come to an end in the days of his son. And so after Ahab dies, his son Ahiza becomes king. And Ahiza, we're told, like, falls through the lattice of his house. Right? Again, seemingly, quote-unquote, at random. So Ahiza falls through this lattice, and he's injured, and he sends out servants to consult the god Beelzebub of Ekron to see if he would recover. So he's inquiring of a god, but it's not the god of Israel, it's a false god. But Elijah intercepts his messengers 
And Elijah is brought before Ahijah, and he says this. Elijah to Ahijah says, This is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel for you to consult that you have sent messengers to consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. And then it says, And because Ahiza had no son, Joram succeeded him as king. So Ahab's family line on the throne of Israel comes to an end right there. Just as God had promised. God's justice came. Ahab died. Dogs licked up in blood. His family family's time on the throne came to an end. Like all the things God promised are done here. God's justice came to pass. It was merely delayed. Ahab got his payday someday. And sometimes when we're, we're suffering or we're hurting, like it, can be, it can be hard to wait for God's delayed justice. We want God's justice now. But in moments when we feel that way, like it, we need to recall passages that assure us that God's justice always prevails. Even if it's not on our timeline. Like we need passages like 1 Kings 21 to remind us of that. We need passages like 1 Thessalonians 1, 6-7 where we read this. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. When? This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. The ultimate prevailing of God's justice will take place when Jesus returns. When Jesus comes back, he will set all things right. God's justice will be done. Naboth will receive his earned commendation in that day. He had to wait a long time between dying under false pretenses to receiving his condemnation when Jesus returned, but he will receive his commendation. And all those who unrepentantly oppose to God will receive their due. God's justice will be done. Everyone will get what they deserve. Eventually, when Jesus comes back, when Jesus returns. It's also helpful, I think, when we're, we're impatient for God's justice, to remind ourselves how thankful we ought to be for God's delayed justice. In Second Peter we read, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Like if God did not delay His justice, none of us would have had any hope. If we received what we deserved the very first time we sinned, none of us would have time to come to faith in Jesus. God was patient with us in our sin, inviting us to trust Jesus in His patience, to, to trust Jesus to forgive our sins. Jesus went to the cross to bear God's just judgment against sin on our behalf. If you're here, you've never trusted Jesus, 
There is a payday coming. You will get what you deserve. Right? And maybe you would say, like, look, I'm a pretty good person. I do good things. My, my life is going well, so apparently God is fine with how I'm living. But I would suggest that even if you are a pretty good person, you're not a perfect person. And God's expectation, God's demand is perfection. And the fact that your life seems to be going well is, is not a sign of God's approval, but God's patience. And the only way you, any of us can attain God's perfect standard and avoid God's just judgment is if we have a substitute. That is what Jesus did for us on the cross. He, he takes our sin and he, he gives us His righteousness. He took our payday and gave us His payday. That's what we remember when we take communion together. Communion reminds us both that one payday has already happened. Right? That on the cross, Jesus received the punishment we deserve for our sins. They are paid for and dealt with. But communion also reminds us that another payday is still coming. A payday when we will sit down with Naboth and all the other saints throughout history at the marriage supper of the Lamb and receive the reward that comes as a result of our having received Christ's righteousness. So in a minute we're going to take communion together. In these past several months we've taken communion by coming forward to either of these stations on either side here and taking the elements and returning to your seat. We do that for a few reasons. One, that we can see one another coming forward and communing together, add to the communal aspect of communion. That's a way to remind us that we are, are one body together. That being said, if you're not able to to stand and get up and get back to your seat easily with, while holding the elements. You can raise your hand and someone will come around and they will distribute the elements to you. If you prefer that, you can raise your hand and we'll get those to you. Also, in the back in the wicker baskets, there are gluten-free elements if you'd prefer that. So just a minute, I'm going to invite you to stand and come forward and grab a juice and a bread and return to your seat and we will partake together when everyone has the almonds. So let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for what Jesus did on the cross. That he paid the debt that we owed. That he took the punishment we deserved. That he bore your wrath against our sins on himself. He paid the price that we could never pay. That in exchange, He gave us His righteousness. He gave us the, the payday, the reward that He earned through His sinless life. We never grow tired of reminding ourselves of wonder of all that Jesus did. 
Would it amaze us anew day after day? That you would show us grace. That you would be patient with us in our sin. Inviting us over and over again to come to repentance. To come to faith in Jesus. That you do not write us off. And as we remind ourselves of your grace toward us, would it move us to live lives like Elijah that are committed to doing the hard things you have called us to do? We thank you that in your wisdom you've given us communion as a means to remind ourselves of all that you've done for us. You've given us communion as a way to remember that Jesus' body was broken for us, that His blood was poured out for us, and to remind us that there is coming a day when Jesus will return and we will gather together at the marriage supper of the Lamb and eat another meal together. As we wait for that day, would you use this time now, this communion time together to encourage us to renew our desire and love for you to draw us even closer to yourself. Father, we thank you for all you've done for us in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're ready, you may come forward, grab the elements, return to your seat, and we will partake together when everyone has them.
supper he he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me let's partake father we thank you for the chance to remember to remember you to remember all that you've done for us Remember your sinless life and your willingly going to the cross on our behalf to bear our sins, to pay penalty in our place. Jesus, we thank you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. And you, you go from here this morning, I would invite you to go remembering that no matter how hard things may seem, no matter how bleak things may be at times, that God's justice will prevail. It may not be in your, in your desired timeline, but God's justice will prevail. God's justice will be done. But go trusting in that fact. You are dismissed.